The shooting in San Jose um, is, it, the, the, the facts are still revealing themselves, but it is absolutely tragic. Because there's a sameness to this. You know, any where USA. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. That was Vice President Kamala Harris and Governor Gavin Newsom talking about the major story of Wednesday morning. A mass shooting at a San Jose light rail yard that left eight people and the gunmen dead. It was the deadliest shooting in the Bay Area since 1993. Also this week, a young man was gunned down in Oakland's Chinatown. His death was the city's 52nd homicide of the year. While mass shootings are horrifying, the vast majority of gun violence actually looks like the one in Chinatown. Less than 3% of America's gun homicide victims die in what we generally consider to be a mass shooting. Our colleagues have the latest updates on the San Jose shooting at sfchronicle.com. But here at Fifth Emission, we wanted to turn our attention to this larger context. Someone who's been thinking about all the ways the Bay Area is confronting gun violence right now is Abane Clayton, a Bay Area-based reporter on The Guardian's Guns and Lies in America project. Abane, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Cecilia. I remember when the first quote-unquote first uh, post-pandemic mass shooting happened. I believe it was in March with the Atlanta spas. People started lamenting, saying, oh, America is really getting back to normal now. But some others would say mass shootings never really stopped, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you look at the gun homicide rates in major cities like um, San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, and even like mid-sized cities out here in Stockton and in like St. Louis and all of these different places, gun violence is just up, 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 you know? And even though most shootings are um, one person is injured, one person is killed, the number of shootings where there are multiple casualties or injuries is up as well, you know, regardless of the fact they make up a very small number of the um, overall shootings, they are still happening in the communities that are most affected by gun violence. And it's still a, a mass shooting, you know, it never stopped. And now there's kind of less debate about whether or not a mass shooting is defined that way based on like where it happened and who the shooter was, there's kind of less room for that subjectivity. Um, but still, we see there's a lot of work to be done because I saw those same things. People saying like, oh, back to the regularly scheduled program. People are shooting again. And I'm like, they never stopped. If anything, it increased. Do we know why there are these spikes in shootings like you mentioned during the pandemic? Well, um, when I get asked that question, I, I always like to say, you know, we're not going to know until we have the benefit of hindsight, until people can look back and, you know, see who was shot and where they were shot, perhaps what kind of gun was used. And we don't have hindsight because it's still happening. You know, um, the most recent shooting was in Oakland yesterday. Someone was killed in Chinatown just recently. You know, a few, um, you know, teenage and young adult um, girls were shot on a party bus. 
a couple 17-year-olds were killed not too long before that. So these things are still happening. But, you know, there are some kind of best um, guesses and hypotheses that I've gotten from, you know, violence interrupters and violence interventionists. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, of course, the kind of stress and economic anxiety that came with the pandemic. But even more so than that was kind of the loss of community safe havens. You know, schools were closed and that was a place where violence interrupters could reach those kids who were really at that at-risk age. You know, around 17 and 18, you're about an age out of a lot of services. You're going to graduate high school. You know, the streets are calling. That's a really difficult age. And there were people who were able to go to campuses after a shooting and kind of um, wrap their arms around the young folks who were most at risk of, um, you know, continuing the cycle of violence or being caught up as a victim themselves. And that extends to the the most at-risk age group, which is really 19 to 29, they were able to, um, a lot of those people may have lost their jobs. You know, having employment is a big factor in um, reducing gun violence. And a lot of violence intervention workers would go out of their way to, you know, take people to job trainings, make sure they had help with their resumes, you know, had certifications and things of that nature. In addition to being able to meet with them one-on-one, you know, just for coffee or just for a hug, just to catch up on life. And those things were completely... um You couldn't do that during the pandemic, you know, Um, not only were people losing their jobs, those in-person interactions just became really unsafe. So I think that had a lot to do with it. And then, you know, police have different um, sort of ideas about what happened. There are people with all kind of, um, you know, speculations. But in my experience, seeing the population that I most often cover, it really looks like the loss of those those safe havens and just having all this free time without the the typical services that keep people safe really, um, I think, contributed a lot to what happened in terms of community violence. Right. And community violence doesn't always get the same attention or rarely does get the same attention as major newsrooms uh, that right now are clamoring to sort of uncover what happened in downtown San Jose. Um, and like many other newsrooms, our own San Francisco Chronicle team rushed to cover uh, the shooting in San Jose. But whenever these shootings happen, we tend to see the same type of stories. You know, who was the shooter? Who were the victims? Should we have seen this coming? You know, at this point, it almost feels like a template. So from your point of view, as someone who looks at community violence, is there a better way to approach news coverage of mass shootings? So that's a really um, that's a really interesting and kind of complicated question, honestly, because if it wasn't for the the breaking news reporters and the reporters who go and clamor and get that kind of information, I don't know how well I'd be able to do my job. You know, like I need those kind of by the minute updates. You know what I'm saying? Like there will be the stories that I write that are kind of those steps back that kind of look at things holistically are peppered with hyperlinks from these local news sites who are doing this breaking news coverage. So I think that in this kind of, um, in the perfect ecosystem of gun violence coverage, if you will, we have breaking news reporters who handle their business, do their job, collect what they need to, the facts and figures from police. But then in addition to those folks, newsrooms should also be staffed with people who can take that information and ask, you know, violence interventionists and, and community experts 
experts and and different things like that. Because even San Jose has been struggling with an increase in gun homicides. It's not a place that we hear about too often, but I see, you know, um, news alerts here and there from the, you know, the Mercury News and things of that nature. And people and folks are getting shot out there as well. So all of that context needs to be a part of this this news ecosystem as I refer to it too. So if the only coverage is the breaking news and the and the clamoring too and the getting feeds, um, excuse me, getting feeds from the governor and these different officials is the only coverage that you're doing on gun violence, then that's where it becomes a bit problematic, you know. And and like you mentioned, the kind of disparity in attention is always laid very bare in the days after a mass shooting of this nature. Because like you said, we're going to find out who the shooter was. We're going to find out who the victims are. And then, um, like you said, that template, that's usually where it stops, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But the way we do better is to continue on the story, to have people who can cover this issue, like I said, holistically and take everything into account from the national context to what's happening locally. You know, talk to people who have lost their loved ones to to recent incidents of gun violence, perhaps, perhaps, and you can feed all of that into what really is a national crisis at the moment. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, if it's just this breaking news and that's it, then that's where we continue to kind of go wrong. Right. And breaking news tends to only hold attention for a certain amount of time, and then it leaves the attention of readers and just the larger community as a whole. And I I know that you've been a part of a cohort of journalists and editors who advocate for covering gun violence as a health crisis, even, as opposed to a very dramatic tragedy or an isolated event. Why is that important? Yeah, I mean, because honestly... Covering it as an isolated event is just not like, it's just not the full story, you know? It's just not, I don't want to say it's not truthful because covering those immediate moments, like that is what happened, but that's not really telling, like I said, telling the full story, you know? Um, I, for me personally, I approached gun violence coverage this way because that's what's felt natural, you know, by having my community, you know, I'm from Richmond and I would see stories about gun violence in the city happening. And it would be weird to see your own experiences told through like a news anchor, you know, I was like, oh, actually that shooting happened around my house. Actually, I know the person who was impacted. Like this is not at all what, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is just not what happened. You're not talking about all the the um, the vigils that are happening after. You're not talking about how hard it is for kids like the person who's been killed in school. You're not talking about how nobody was there for him when his brother was killed. Like, you know, you're just not talking about all of the things that have led up to the the one moment that hits the headlines. And um, it, it is a, a public health crisis in every kind of sense of the word. If you're exposed to gun violence at a young age, you're more likely to be shot. You know what I'm saying? The repercussions of gun violence spread like a virus through um, communities, you know, trauma goes unchecked and it just kind of begets these cycles like a disease that if you don't handle it, it's only going to metastasize and it's going to bring down the entire body. And if in this case, the body is a community, then gun violence is definitely that that cancer that just sends shockwaves throughout entire neighborhoods and really destabilizes folks. But that kind of context isn't um, included. So it is kind of just seen as an issue of just crime. You know, it's just people acting up, people deciding to be um, trifling, you know, 
sorry, sorry can I say tri? Yes, that's totally fine. Okay. But that is, if you only look at kind of the way we've been doing gun violence, especially um, gun violence coverage, especially in local news places, you would really just think that when you get a bunch of poor Black and Latino people together, they're going to shoot each other. That is really, if all you saw was that and you knew nothing of these communities... That's what you're going to think. And you're going to think that the only way to address that is with more um, police, honestly. But if you look at it from this public health perspective, you can understand, one, that there are people who have been working on this issue for years and have gotten very little support. People try to, um, you know, wrap their arms around families, try to go to the folks who are deemed the most dangerous in a city and try to pull them out of that um, crisis mode that they're in. You know, like gun violence is absolutely horrible. And um, I just don't think that the true impact that it has on families, on kids, on mothers, on fathers, on every single person, even people who haven't um, had a loved one killed, just that community trauma, people don't talk about it. And I'm like, maybe perhaps if we did, we could send our resources to more specific and helpful places. Um, But if people don't know, then... It's just really unlikely that that progress is going to be made at the speed um, that this issue uh, requires. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I think you mentioned some of the reasons why there's been an escalation of violence, but more than double of what we saw last yeah. year. What are people in Oakland saying about it? What is what are city officials saying? I mean, What's happening? You know, it depends on which city official you're um, talking to. Some a city council member named um, Lauren Taylor. He's um, he represents East Oakland, and he's very outspoken about the level of devastation and how heartbroken he is to see it. I mean, all of the messages are just of sadness, anger. Um, some confusion, but a lot of people feel they're very clear on what's happening um, and, and why it's it's happening. But a lot of it is just a lot of sadness and frustration with um, with what's going on and just the level of um, loss of life that is happening. And what are residents and community members in Oakland saying about these gun-related homicides, and what are they asking for at this point? You know, that's kind of that's kind of tough. I went to a um, a kind of peace in the street, stop the violence caravan that went through East Oakland um, not too long ago, and it is it was hard for me to decipher what people are calling for. You know, you talk to to crime victims and. Some are still calling for mental health care for themselves and for their, um, if they have, you know, younger children whose um, sibling was killed, they're still calling for mental health resources, for trauma counseling. There are people who have lost multiple family members throughout the years and decades in Oakland who are just calling on the people who are doing the shooting to stop. There are people who want the police to, quote unquote, step up in whatever ways that may look like. There are people who are calling on the community and the 
region and the state at large to pay attention to what's happening and to kind of lionize these victims of violence in Oakland in the same way that we saw um, happen with, you know, the Parkland kids and different things of that nature. So people are calling for all kinds of um, of different things at the moment, but all of it boils down to someone paying attention and caring enough to either intervene or caring enough to put the gun down. You know, and and that's really what it's been boiling down to. It seems like newsrooms could help with that effort. I would um, I would agree. I will. Every time I do a story and I talk to a victim of gun violence, one of the last things that they'll say is like, I'm just so glad someone cares. Like, I'm just so glad. Sorry, I get emotional talking about this because it do be really hella sad. Um, You know, they just be wanting someone to listen and for someone to. You know, a lot of people in East Oakland and a lot of people in communities where people uh, get shot and stuff, like, they end up having to do that extra work of saying, my kid wasn't a gangster. Like, my kid didn't do nothing to nobody. And that's what they live with. Um, And so then I have a chance to kind of come in and do a story. And I'm like, I don't care about your your son or your daughter's record, if they had one or not. Like, I want to know what they meant to you. And I want to know what this loss means to you. And so many people are so grateful for those things. And I wish I had, you know, like five clones so I could talk to every single person and I could go to every single vigil and I can go to every single candle lighting ceremony and put every name in there. And I try to reach out as much as I can and say, if there's ever anything you want to tell me, if you want to be interviewed, let me know. And I try to make myself as available as possible. But um, it's just, it's a lot for one newsroom. And I'm, I'm so grateful that so many other places are trying to do this, this kind of work, because it's unfortunate that a story about a, you know, a family who's lost an integral member of their clan to um, gun violence is an evergreen story. You know, it doesn't have to be pegged to anything. You can reach out, you see somebody post about a two-year anniversary or someone, their family member, reach out. You can tie it to a context. Like, it's not like these things are only relevant after like what we've seen in San Jose. And um, it's not to me. I want to talk about this all the time, but it also can be incredibly overwhelming. But seeing the gratitude from folks who are just like, I just want, you know, a solid picture of my kid in the news. I just want their name to be out there, not tied to no nonsense. I just want people to know how I felt about my loved one. That is something that like, it's a, it's a privilege to have people trust you that much. And I would love for other newsrooms and other reporters to experience the same thing because the news coverage and the way we talk about gun violence really does have an impact on what happens on streets and really does have an impact on how much resources, organizations that are doing incredible work get. The fact that a lot of these places exist on shoestring budgets while they're saving cities millions of dollars in emergency costs is something that every city official and every newsroom should know and should put as a line of context in their story. Just like you put the line that says this is the 52nd homicide and exponentially more than the last year, you can put a line about the amazing work that people are trying to do. Just like you'll have a police source that'll tell you this is why we think gun violence is happening. There are people who are violence interventionists that have been talking to media for years. You need to put a same line, give them equal space to talk about the good things that are happening and the efforts that they're trying to make and how important the work they are doing is. People need to know that it's happening because they just don't. So like I said, they assume that like, well, when you get a bunch of poor black and brown people together, this is what happens. This is a natural part of, you know, living in the hood. This is what they do. And that's racist and is wrong, period. You know, like in moments like these where 
we see the news headlines of another mass shooting, I'm really glad that you were here to remind us about community violence that affects all of us as a whole. And I know this work is difficult, and I want to thank you for not only doing the work, but talking to us about it. Oh, Cecilia, I so appreciate you making the space to have this conversation. Um, Thank you so much. If you'd like to read Avani's coverage of gun violence, you can read her work on theguardian.com. And for the latest updates on the San Jose shooting, visit sfchronicle.com. Thank you to KCRA Sacramento, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.